I sometimes ask, you know, five people what their definition of observability is, and I hear like 10 different definitions, right, from five people. But I think the general theme is around, you know, being able to ask questions that you didn't know that you should ask. I realized that, like, you know, one of the biggest blockers in my, like, career, it was the lack of observability data. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Meters. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I realized that, like, you know, one of the biggest blockers in my, like, career, it was the lack of observability data. And, like, a while ago, actually, we were not calling this observability data. It's such a kind of, like, you know, concept that you helped create in the last, you know, very recently. As a person who is very new into the industry, one of my, like, onboarding experiences was always, like, going to the monitoring tools or the performance tools. Like, you know, you were trying to, like, understand actually what's going on from an outsider perspective. And these tools were, like, um, not very sufficient, but was my entry point. So I kind of like started to see that there's a trend and I became more interested in performance uh, plus monitoring all along the way. Even though, you know, I was a software engineer, I think I was just like, you know, at least spending 20 to 30 uh, percent of my time on, you know, kind of like establishing how we use these tools, how we were like collecting data and stuff like that. When you say it was holding you back, you mean like from shipping quickly or from understanding or like, what was it holding you back from? It was both. You know, if you're not coming to a small team working on a small project, most of the time you're looking at this huge code base with so many different components and you don't necessarily have a great uh, big picture understanding of what, what actually it does, mm-hmm. plus how it behaves. So I can give an example. When I joined Google on my second day, I actually like fixed a bug because my mentor was suggesting me to, hey, like we have this like distributed tracing tool. Do you want me to give you a demo? And I said, yes. Like, what is that? Right. Like, and as soon as like, you know, he demonstrated me, I was able to see all the RPCs and, you know, there were like 200 services in the, you know, chain, which I would have been spending maybe, you know, five years just learning the names. Right. Uh, so, so it's kind of a shortcut to understanding for you, right. For understanding what goes where that you otherwise would have had to stumble across kind of tripping over the roots. Exactly. We spend our year, our time when we are introduced to a new system, trying to build up this intricate mental map, which is always out of date. And it's always like suddenly off and like just getting that data out of our heads in a tool where you can you can see it and where it's democratically available to everyone. Everyone sees the same, you know, vision of the system, which is more or less up to date. It is amazing how much that transforms your ability to locate yourself in the problem and, and spend more of your time on the actual solving of the problem instead of just like, where in the system is the code that I need to find in order to even start debugging the, the problem? And then you're talking about very large systems, but I think that part of our thesis is that it's not just large systems anymore. It's like... That is completely true. Like, even, you know, when we're talking about large systems, we're always thinking about, like, like, the systems that we own. But if you think about, like, the whole space, like, yeah. I rely on tons of, like, external dependencies, yeah. like, layers of layers of stack, like, which I don't necessarily have a good understanding of. A lot of your system 
is it your system? <laughs> it's our system. It's collectively our system. That's true. Like you only own like a small piece on the you know top of everything, and you know yeah. the complexity is there, and it's just not getting any better. It's getting worse over time, right? <laughs> it's getting way worse. Yeah. So now would be a good time for you to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Yana. I'm a principal engineer at AWS. I'm leading um, our instrumentation and telemetric collection work, uh, and as well as I'm leading some of the newer observability services that we are working on. I've been working on this field for a while, and you know I'm a big fan of your work. So thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm going to guess that if you're listening to Olicast, you know who Yanni is, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> that's, that's such a big compliment. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's super, super interesting to see how the field has evolved. You mentioned earlier that you started off as a kind of pure software engineer and you became more ops-minded and kind of eventually grew to focus on developer tooling. Or is that like not reality embedded? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I mean, re- it's actually unbelievable to have those boundaries, right? Like a software engineer plus like ops, like it's just this continuous cycle. So I think historically we created these boundaries, but, you know, those boundaries are just more fluid and just going away. You can't separate creating and and maintaining. Exactly. Like, it's the same system. And it's just really good for the health of the system. Like, you should be doing the operational work as well to understand what's going on. Otherwise, it's kind of like creating this, like, unbalanced situation where you as a developer don't necessarily care about the operational side of the things. But It's like if you have a surgeon who's just doing surgery and then never checks in on their patient. They're just like, well, exactly. nurse's <laughs> job now. That's a great analogy, yeah. So I think earlier we talked about how observability is this kind of newer term and that it did exist at kind of some of these larger companies who weren't necessarily calling it observability. When did this kind of start to coalesce for you? Like kind of what was the commonality that led towards it being like its own discipline? I think, you know, it is a still a, you know, difficult topic. I sometimes ask, you know, five people what their definition of observability is. And I hear like 10 different, you know, definitions, right, from five people. But I think the general theme is around, you know, being able to ask questions that you didn't know that you should ask and being able to correlate stuff, being able to, you know, dynamically enable things and just making the most out of what you collected with, you know, enriching things with context and so on is is how I see observability. Mm -hmm. You have probably a better answer to this question than I am. Oh, I have answer number 11 to add to your... your, your. Our our listeners have heard, you know, the the first five things that we (laughs) define observability (laughs) as. So it's kind of, you know, we like to hear from our guests about kind of not just what their definition is, right, but the road. How did they arrive there? So kind of along those lines, like, you know, what are kind of some of the blockers, right? Like, what are some of the things that make people come to observability too late? I think one of the reasons is, um, historically speaking, there's always been a barrier. You know, we talk a lot about, like, there's been different initiatives going on in terms of like telemetry data or context or what the telemetry data we collect means and so on. So, you know, as a developer, you always think like, this is not my mandatory job. We just need to, you know, check a box so we can have like some basic monitoring and stuff like that. So it's not when you're getting judged on or evaluated on, right? It's like you're exactly. not using features. Yeah. It's just like a late time, you know, I need to check this 
box so we can push things to production. But, you know, it's more involved than just, you know, the operational side of things. I think what observability enabled recently was it became a tool to learn about your systems. And now, you know, people see the value and then they care about this very early on. And your users, it literally links you to the impact of your work. How much more motivating can you get than that? Except for, like, I think people felt maybe it was too hard, right? Like that there was too much of a barrier because they didn't know what to do or how to get there. Or, you know, like they had to be very prepared. Like when we were thinking about like typical monitoring, we are talking about having some like canonical signals that you need to agree on before you start monitoring them, right? Like it just requires too much work. And when we were developing systems, we are like doing everything very gradually. You learn more about the system you care, like you start to like learn more what to collect and like how to like interpret them in the long term. So I think that like gradual, you know, growth just didn't really match with the monitoring style because monitoring was like, I need to have like this canonical things to take a look at. I need to set my SLOs. Maybe, maybe observability is helping people because it's just kind of like, works well with that like gradual growth and learning. I think that there's kind of a, a thing here where, like you said, you know, people think of like everything that happens after deploy as being like an afterthought or nice to have or extra. I, I think there's kind of a, a parallel there. There's so much work that's gone into this already. You know, there's like layers and layers of like teams gone by and graphs and dashboards. They just like, accumulate and everything. And like, I think that the initial reaction is often just one of weariness. Yeah. People don't want another tool. They just don't want another tool. You don't want another tool. If you have a system that is working-ish and you've been raised to see computers as like a source of like much fear and suffering, like don't change it. It's up. <laughs> Nobody touched this thing, right? Then the last thing you want to do is disrupt that fragile ecosystem and the grand promises of a vendor or somebody on Twitter, right? And I get that. And I also feel like it sounds hard because it's new, so it sounds harder. But like, I think that the, the thing that I keep trying to people understand is that it's easier this way. It's actually simpler this way. You don't have to be a great engineer if you can see what the fuck you're yeah. doing, right? <laughs> like like you said at the very your very first answer, like, mm-hmm. I could see it. Yep. The 200 services, how am I going to know which one is there, right? Well, you see it, you don't have to be genius. And this is great because we shouldn't have to be geniuses in our everyday life. You know, we should just be like code monkeys just doing our work and like focusing on, you know, delivering value to our customers and not just having to like, Save the day, you know, (laughs) it's easier this way. And that's what I keep, you know, I think it's on us who are trying to like tell a story to, to then follow it up with, and here's a step-by-step, you know, guide to getting there, you know, because it's not actually their job to innovate and observability. It's their job to do something else, right? That's what we get paid to do. So I do think that, you know, it, it really sets the bar for us to follow up. So in that vein of kind of getting things out of the way for people and kind of paving that golden path, three or four years ago, there was open census and and open tracing. And therefore, there were multiple paths and people had to kind of be experts to figure out which one they wanted. Kind of what led to the combination of those two projects together? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, right? Like, I think, um, so for the listeners who doesn't have much context, uh, I was working on the census team and which was an internal instrumentation library at Google that was linked to every like production service and it was collecting metrics and traces. 
So uh, at some point, we realized that like we just needed something very similar externally for the cloud users. Uh, we looked at like what's around. Um, you know, open tracing was doing the work for tracing, but it lacks some of the things that we like, such as like you know being able to correlate things. Um, it just was more of like a, you know API rather than the implementation. We just wanted to we just wanted to have a couple of features that we can maybe talk about them. But we ended up diverging and maybe contributed to the problem of having too many tools because people were looking for practices and the golden paths and we were giving them like this yet another tool that you need to learn and like you need to be an expert in this area to be able to understand the nuances and such and we quickly realized and, and in the beginning since the beginning I was very interested in merging these projects to be honest but because of the goals were diverged they went in different directions and I think we didn't necessarily see that open census becoming a big thing so soon and we just didn't expect like it's going to be adopted that widely so we didn't think that we are going to disrupt like and create this level of confusion but as soon as that happened, it just became clear to us that like, you know, it makes no sense to have like two very similar things. Right. Like neither project was going to succeed if they were competing with each other. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, everybody was coming to us, like all the customers. Why, 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 you know, do I have to know two, uh, you know, tools for very similar things? And, you know, which one I should pick? Like what small nuances are you talking about? So this became a huge, you know, issue. You know, there, there's this concept of you know, when you're trying to introduce a new standard or something you actually like add one more so we were, now you have three problems <laughs> exactly yeah so we were contributing to the problem rather than solving the problems it became very clear that like you know merge needs to happen and it happened and it's it's a positive thing and now you're, you know, sitting in a slightly different role, but still working in the open telemetry ecosystem because you and I, Yana and I used to be colleagues at Google. And now, you know, I work at Honeycomb, Yana works at AWS, but we still work on observability. Kind of, I've spoken a little bit about what that shift was like for me going from Google to Honeycomb. It was like shift going for you going from, you know, Google where you were doing internal facing tools plus cloud tools to AWS. Like, what was that shift like? Yeah, like um, almost a year ago, AWS asked me, they want to adopt open telemetry more widely all across because they believe in this mission that it is important for us to be able to collect the right data and be able to push it to the tools that our customers want to use, right? Like they're not necessarily interested in pushing data to only to AWS services, but, you know, want to be able to also push to Honeycomb as well or the, you know, the other tools. Right, it's that fragmentation and that kind of data wall issue that's kind of almost similar to what we just talked about with open census and open tracing where people just wanted one thing to just work. Exactly. They just don't want to understand any of these building blocks. They just want all of these pipelines to just work um, so they can choose whatever tool they want or they can write their custom tools to, you know, if they need like something very specific for their use case. So they came up to me suggesting like, hey, would you like to lead some of these efforts, right? Like um, it's a huge, you know, cross-company effort. We don't have a lead for that. And it just, I felt, you know, immediately that, if I really that's a big deal. It is a big deal, but at the same time, like, hey, I can help open telemetry a lot by doing this work. Mm -hmm. Because you know, like AWS, um, it's a huge provider, um, has a lot of like services. It's a huge problem there and as well as like the customers. If I can get this right, it could be also a good reference point. That's how I got excited and you know, ended up joining AWS and now um, I'm trying to, you know, drive some of these integrations in I uh, want to make sure that, you know, we're trying to you know, adopt it more widely. It's not just like we're adopting 
the instrumentation libraries or the collectors for the customers. We, we want to use the same thing ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Something that I learned just this last year, I've been preaching this like arbitrarily wide structured data blobs are the way to understand your data for, for years and years. And I, I found out on Twitter just this last year that that's what AWS has done it since the beginning of time. Like it's just like flat files and every host and everything, but then they do like distribute it. I was just like, God damn, that's amazing and infuriating and awesome and validating and cool. <laughs> right, like we should have been sharing these practices and ideas and like trying to figure out how to get these things to interoperate. And now that you're there, I'm like, now maybe some of these things will get broadcasted a little bit more widely. And everybody, now Yana no longer has me blocked on Twitter, so we can talk about this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, you know, AWS is also a really big company. I mean, think about like Amazon as a whole. It's just a huge company and there's so much flexibility. I think there's a huge sharp difference between, you know, some of the companies that I work here in the, uh, Amazon. Amazon is hungry. <laughs> it is so big. And at the same time, that's why like, you know, each team needs to have some flexibility. And that's why like you yeah. see this like more like, you know, less structured stuff going around. I like that though, because it's like, there isn't a mandate. You have to sell it, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sell your vision. The teams have to opt in affirmatively. They have to be convinced. And I believe that that ultimately, it leads to a stronger product and a stronger like technical um, production. And also translates better to customer needs, right? Like if you have customers who need to buy in, right? Like, and your customers happen to also be internal, right? Like that's a lot more similar than being able to say, we have a new mandate. Yeah. Yeah. Like at Facebook, Scubo, which Honeycomb is based off of, is but ugly. It's like aggressively hostile to users. It is, it looks like it was designed in 2010 because it was. <laughs> and, and that's because they don't have customers. They have Here's what you get to use. <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> so when someone is not a captive audience, right? Like what are the things that you are trying to nudge them towards, Jana, in terms of like best observability practices? Like what are you trying to get people to do? I think, you know, like it starts from how much, you know, you're invested in this, like from the beginning um, or as a later time. I mean, I think a lot of things like are starting from like canonical things that we need to do. And everything else is case by case and ad hoc. When I mean by like canonical things, we need to have like, you know, sufficient telemetry. This is most of the time, you know, in the typical terms is getting like metrics, basic metrics, plus, you know, some traces and logs uh, in a correlated fashion. And then, you know, being able to provide some like primitives. So if a team wants to, you know, provide some additional data, they should be able to, you know, correlate that data. But most of the, I think, interesting cases are enabled by case by case, what we need to do in terms of instrumentation. Since I'm working on instrumentation, I think my uh, answer to this is going to be very like scope uh, to what we do in terms of like, you know, telemetric collection. And I think that I should answer this question from that perspective because you are, you know, inviting other guests who can give some other broader answers. But since this is my expertise, I think it's, it makes more sense for me to, you know, talk about my scope. Really? So most of the time, the bigger challenge, I think, in this area is like representing the end-to-end -end needs. When you're working in, you know, telemetric collection or the best practice or what we need to actually capture, it's just more about like users you know, journey in a critical path, right? Like most of the teams where I was explaining to you, this is a large company and everybody has a lot of flexibility, but at the same time, our customers are touching so many, you know, uh, services along the way. So somebody needs to be owning that entire story and like try to shift the teams to do the right things in order to, you know, bring more like uh, telemetry data out of the box. 
So it sounds like what you're describing is offering a consistent user experience, right? To make sure that you are exploring the same golden signals of metrics, that you are exploring the same fields that you would expect to see on kind of traces and wide events. Exactly. And the difficulty is, I think a lot of like teams at large companies just look at their like small scope and they really understand what they can expose, but they don't necessarily mean what it means in the, you know, the larger. And so I'm, I'm feeling that gap or trying to fill that gap because there's so much work to do there. And I think specifically in a company where teams are, have a lot of like autonomy, um, it's sometimes like much of a harder problem, but you know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I think another question that I had was kind of relating to language proliferation, right? Like, how do you support all the varying languages that Amazon Teams develop in and make sure that it is all kind of adhering to the same kind of templates and practices? Yeah, this is a huge challenge. And, you know, in the industry in general, this is a huge challenge. I never want to talk about like just the internal stuff because all the, you know, industry problems are also our problems because we have similar like scale and like fragmentation between teams. If you think about like, for example, we want to, you know, have like high cardinality labeling plus being able to, you know, propagate those labels between different services because everybody uses microservices and you want to, you know, just kind of put that context on the wire and pass it along. So when you're like, Collecting data, you just want to, you know, put the right context. Um, all these things require a lot of, like, you know, agreements uh, in terms of both on wire yeah. and in languages. It's like a schema that you have to, like, come up with the definition and then everything. And you don't really want there to be a rigid schema because you need people to be able to toss in ad hoc data at any point. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you take a look at what's going on in the industry right now, like the trace work with trace context and open telemetry is also like introducing some of these uh, primitives. But at the language levels, like not, not every language has a canonical way. So like in Java, for example, there are five different ways to, you know, propagate the context. And One of the ways that I've described observability to some people, because different definitions like click for different people. One of the ways is, is just by talking about how, you know, we used to have the app, right? The monolithic app. And almost all the complexity was really bound up in the app. And if you had to, you could attach a debugger and just step right through it and see, you know. But all that context, right, it's bound up in the process. It's executing. And then when you introduce multiple services, suddenly your your process is just hopping from service to service and discarding all of that context every single time. And the role of the instrumentation for observability is to pack up as much of that context that might ever be useful as possible and just ship it along with the request at every hop. And, you know, this is why observability became as a concept, right? Like the fact that like distributed systems is just an everyday fact now is the fact that observability as a concept had to arrive. And, you know, we had a very context specific, you know, definition. Yeah, It's what made it necessary, not a nice to have, because suddenly our old tools just don't work anymore, right? It pushed so much of software engineering out of the data structures and algorithms realm and into the realm of networks, lossy networks, packets, disks, hop, 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 hop. And suddenly you're an ops person now and you need different tools. Yeah, the funny thing is, you know, a couple of years ago, like back in, I think, 2006, uh, 7, 8, I was working on the performance and profiling tools. And we wanted to just expand on the Go programming language. And we wanted to expand us to like observability to see what else we can do. And um, as soon as like we are 
doing that, like I, I was leading some of the work over there. As soon as, you know, I started to step into observability, I realized that, hey, I can't solve this in the scope of a language. Like it's just, it, you need agreements, you know. And if you really build something really good for a language, like then you are fragmenting the community so badly, right? Like yeah. you will have to like fix that problem in the next yeah. whatever years. So I didn't want to do it. And that's how I pivoted into the census team <laughs> because they were trying to, you know, solve some of these problems. And that's how I left the goal team. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's super, super interesting, right? Like from the automatic instrumentation perspective, you know, working with the various auto instrument SIGs of OTEL, right? Some of them you can do bytecode hooking or you can just override modules, right? Like, so we see that in Python, Ruby, Java, right? Like where you can just reach in and do things. Whereas for Go, you kind of have to have hooks. You have to have wrappers. And if the language doesn't support it, right? Like if the library doesn't support it, you're really out of luck. And that's kind of been a really painful and sore spot. That's true. And like, there's been several actually um, ideas, you know, how to like hook into runtime events and such. Um, like, thank goodness for HTTP trace, right? What did we do before HTTP trace? Exactly. Yeah. Like these things just came at a later time and there's so much space to improve. But, you know, like the proposals, all the proposals that I've seen was kind of at the early stage. Uh, there's so much, you know, to do. People coming from JVM, for example, they are like, oh, you know, I can interpret every call. I can instrument things, you know, at a later time. We unfortunately don't have um, that type of capabilities in Go, at least not officially. Some people have been trying to hack into things, but, you know, I can't recommend it for the production services. Speaking of kind of innovative things, specific languages, you know, I do, Honeycomb uses PProf, like not often, but like when we do use it, it's a lifesaver. But that feels like it's even more at the fringes and observability is, right? Like, you know, you don't have to be an expert to use distributed tracing today, but you kind of still feels like you have to be an expert to use PProf. So kind of when are tools like eBPF and PProf like going to reach the mainstream adoption? Ooh. I think it's because of the fact that like you need them when you hit a really, you know, micro optimization. I mean, most of the time you don't necessarily have a CPU optimization problem, right? But everybody wants to have like a bird's eye view of their services. So they care about distributed tracing more because it has an everyday use. Yeah. I really feel like the low level system stuff and, and it pains me to say this because I love them. Like, I love <laughs> performance tooling. But, like, for the average engineer, needing to fall back and use one of them is a sign that, you know, it's a leaky abstraction, right? Because when is the last time I went to the colo and, like, had to figure out if there was bad RAM in a machine? You know, it's just it's <laughs> something that's like, you know, we're moving up the stack. And for the average software engineer, you, you shouldn't need to use them often. It should be an exception, you know? I think... I think that will can be more and more the case. I completely agree. Like for fundamental building blocks, maybe you actually need to take care. Like one example is the telemetry instrumentation libraries, right? The area that we are working on. It's important to maybe optimize a couple of things because you are adding some like, you know, overhead to every, you know, request because you create some, you know, trace bands. Um, right, and who traces the tracer? Yeah, that's that's totally reasonable. Exactly. This isn't everything, so you're just like especially like adding like another ten to twenty percent overhead. So you care about those things, and you know one of the reasons I actually work liked uh, continuous profiling and I spent some time working on it is it 
kind of helps you to recognize what are some of these super hot pads in the entire production. Like mm-hmm. in, in the continuous profiling world, you are you know uploading your profiling data. It aggregates everything and tells you, oh, these are like the functions that you know you call all across the company or all across the organization. And then yeah. if there's any you know thing that you can improve, at least you know it gives you like the priority list, right? Um, yeah. So it's kind of the difference between what are the tools that a platform team uses and what are the tools that kind of product dev teams should use daily. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of distinction in audiences is something that kind of hasn't really been super well articulated, right? Like you definitely see tools being put out there, you know, saying, hey, you know, use continuous profiling, right? Like, but not actually saying this is what it's good for and this is when you should use it instead of tracing. I think that the those tools are mostly kind of a luxury for the teams that already have their shit in order. You must be this tall to ride this ride, you know, much like SLOs. It's like, it's a luxury that everyone should have. It's like, what should I do this week? Oh, let's see if I can lower my AWS bill. You know, I mean, thumbs up. Um, but so many teams are just not in that space. They, they've got a ways to go before they get there. Yeah, and, you know, everything is becoming cheaper also, right? Like, yeah. you know, memory and, like, CPU is just becoming cheaper. So yeah. it becomes more of a more of a luxury. Yeah. Just throw more hardware at it. It's like yeah. the <laughs> system is like, well, what if we just add more of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of addressing that hierarchy of needs for sure. Yeah, and, like, you know, whatever you can improve is just really this, like, top of the stack, like your actual application. But there's layers of layers of, you know, complexity and, you know, unoptimized stuff underneath it. Yeah. So, you know that, like, you know, you're blocked in a way. So, you know, yes, of course you can improve things, but in the larger picture, you have very few chances to actually improve your build. Yeah. What is the best thing to spend your energy on as an engineer? Like, for most companies, for most teams at most companies, it's like spend it on your core business differentiators. That, that is what most people at most companies should spend most of their time on. And it's only when you get very large, uh, where you have real specialists, or when you're really in trouble, mm-hmm. <laughs> or you're just being kind of wasteful with your most precious resource, which many teams are. And so many for so many engineers, because this is fun to us, it's just it's a real temptation <laughs> to just be like... So I, I I really need to do this this week to stop you from, you know. Yeah, I've seen this a lot. Like, I have this, like, you know, Friday, you know, on my happy projects or something like that. And, like, let me profile and, like, let's see, you know, what I can prematurely optimize, right? Like, it's such a common behavior. <laughs> and once in a while, you pick up that rug and there's a giant fucking cockroach and you get to go, see, I told you so. You're so lucky that I looked under that rug today. <laughs> yeah. So one final topic before we wrap up, kind of what is that intersection of kind of application logic, cloud customers, and kind of when the uh, leaky abstraction becomes like leaky, right? Like how do we better diagnose these things? Mm-hmm. Like what is our path forward when we start, you know, seeing things where, you know, there's sharding that's going on in the provider side that's invisible, right? Like what, what happens when the magic is no longer so magic? Yeah, like going back to the fact that everything is becoming, you know, more complex or in terms of like, you know, what we depend, um, you know, in the end of the day, my app is just a really tiny part of the entire system, right? It just relies on all these different systems. And um, one thing that I realized, like it, especially like among customers, that they have to learn the behavior 
they optimizing for that learned behavior over time. But in the end of the day, they never actually understand what actually went wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the typical problems was like, hey, there is a outage. They can't really tell, like, is it my problem or is it like cloud provider's problem? They were at like that level. Once we we are able to answer that question, the next thing that we can do is exactly telling them like what actually went wrong, um, you know, in that particular path. So, you know, if it's a misuse or something, they actually like learn uh, how the system. So you're being their observability. That is true. Yeah. Like, I, and I feel like this is one of the reasons I took this job because, you know, all the things that we provide is just a huge, you know, unknown box. Like they don't know what the behavior is, what's going on inside, but it's just really important to the, you know, the availability and the entire like health of the, you know, the, the critical path. We are sort of like in this position to provide the best. <laughs> so, you know, you can truly understand what actually happened because, you know, you, you want to rely on it. And that's the only way that we can communicate what's happening. And that's, the, you know, the value proposition pretty much. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.